בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, ברוכים הבאים, We are back here on our Stump the Rabbi series, ברוך השם, by far the most successful series we've uh, ever had in answering and addressing many questions that people have uh, to deal with their day-to-day life, uh, to understand the different writings that are inside the Torah, Kedoshah, to understand what's really uh, being said, what uh, am I understanding, what am I not understanding. Tonight's uh, shiur will be for the Refuah uh, Shlema, for Rabbanit Levana Bat Sara, Rav Ephraim Ben Shulamit, Rabbanit Sara Bat Anat, Avi Mori David Ben Nesriya, Imi Morati Doris Bat Jora, and all of the uh, righteous uh, Noahides and righteous Jews and the righteous people that are... Uh, watching and supporting our uh, shiurim, uh, certainly uh, the ones that have uh, been with us for many years are very, very appreciated. Uh, just as a reminder for all of you that are uh, outside of uh, uh, here in Florida, that uh, all over uh, the country, we're going to be traveling uh, in the coming month uh, to New York. We'll do a uh, short tour in New York for several days. So any of you that uh, want to arrange a lecture uh, in your uh, place of business, in your house, in your synagogue, at a uh, hall, whatever it is, if you can get a uh, group of people together and you want to uh, get a lecture together, please contact us at events uh, at events uh, events at bhtorah.org. Events at bhtorah.org. Uh, we'll review all opportunities and try to make the most productive schedule for those several days. We're going there to work. We're not going there to have a good time of sightseeing. Uh, so anyone that wants to arrange an event in their uh, synagogue or elsewhere, please let us know, and uh, we'll discuss it to see what uh, can be done. Uh, aside from that, anyone that wants to continue contributing uh, and helping us with all of the amazing things that the organization is doing, uh, there are certainly quite a few projects in the works. Of course, this lecture series that we're going to be doing in uh, uh, lecture tour in New York is certainly going to be a uh, expensive uh, uh, endeavor, but nonetheless, we're excited for it. Uh, anyone that wants to sponsor the lectures can also sponsor the lectures even without uh, arranging one. Uh, you can go to our uh, uh, website. There's different uh, campaigns. One of them is for these lectures. We're more than happy to uh, have partners. So, with that being said, uh, you know, we have a, uh, Baruch Hashem, a, just simply an endless stream of questions that come in uh, from people from all over the world, whether it's from uh, the uh, Australia, England, uh, Israel, United States, of course, uh, different parts of uh, the world, uh, wonderful people that, uh, you know, ask questions, but many times the, uh, the most pertinent questions the most difficult questions to deal with uh, is the ones that have to do with emotions, meaning that people are dealing with different tests in their life. They uh, lose their job or perhaps lose their marriage, lose a person in their life that's important to them. Uh, they have all types of difficulties. Sometimes there's certain people that have you know, the, uh, the uh, most uh, uh, minor tests, but to them, they're the most major tests. They're minor to you, they're major to them. Uh, and uh, they ask questions, why is God doing this to me? And uh, of course, the answer that God tests you is usually not enough. It's usually not enough for people. People usually want much more than that. They want to know why, what's the, uh, you know, why am I being tested? 
I did tshuva, I started uh, keeping Shabbat, I started uh, keeping family purity, I started learning Torah, I started giving tzedakah, why am I being married? Uh, you know, a nice young woman that uh, is a student of mine already for a few years, uh, you know, she met a uh, young man that uh, was a Jew, that was a, uh, seemed like a nice boy, but was a little bit modern. And when she asked me about it, I wasn't exactly ecstatic, ecstatic about this shiduch. And of course, when the shiduch broke, because the guy was a joker, uh, you know, on, on one hand, I told her that this is a very big blessing. That's a very big blessing that this shiduch broke. I know that, you know, you're in England over there and you're looking for the, uh, you know, the, the perfect person and it's not easy to get it because, uh, you know, you, you're simply, you live in a place where you uh, uh, think that everything that's available to you is already not something that you're interested in and the, the, what you want is simply going to come out of, I don't know, Mars. So this one guy seems like he was the best thing since sliced bread and now that it broke off, you can't move on. And of course, she's dealing with this hardship. And while we have other students that are dealing with other hardships, another, another young woman uh, that uh, is dealing with a horrible divorce with a, you know, her ex-husband, uh, and uh, only to find out that the lawyer that she was using uh, really did no work whatsoever, didn't show up on the day of the case. The, uh, the judges or the, the, the legal system over there in, uh, in England is really... Uh, upside down. It was just people from uh, the street were actually judging the case. Long story short, they, even though she was uh, had all the reasons in the world for them to postpone the case, or at the very least, be you know for the judges to understand uh, that uh, she's uh, has our hands tied behind our back because the lawyer that she paid to uh, is a uh, uh, didn't show up, and uh, and so many words stole the money. Uh, you know. Unfortunately, that didn't work out that way. The judges were very harsh on her and simply uh, sided with the ex-husband and uh, everything seems to have been thrown upside down. And of course, they ask, why is God doing this to me? Uh, I left idolatry, I left heresy, I left immodesty, I'm sticking with Hashem, I'm praying every day, I'm doing all the good things that you know you, God says that he wants me to do. So I'm doing it, so why is this stuff happening to me? Now, of course, to tell these people that God is testing you is simply not enough. Generally speaking, the, uh, that's the answer. But of course, again, when somebody wants more, the only way for them to, to really truly understand uh, why God is testing them is through the Torah Kedushah, by learning, by delving into it, and truly trying to understand why is this difficulty happening to me? Why am I lacking this? Why am I having this hardship, a health issue, or whatever it is? And Baruch Hashem, one of the things that I could certainly consider myself uh, a, a, an expert in is hardship. I've dealt with a lot of hardship in my life and Baruch Hashem for all of it uh, because all of it were, was and is something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is using to help me. But to get from uh, why is God doing this to me to Baruch Hashem that He is doing this to me are obviously a, uh, you know, it, it's a long stretch between the two. It's a long stretch between the two. And let uh, not anybody understand that we want hardship. It's that we actually need it. So there's a difference between wanting it and needing it. Needing it is simply because HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that what you need better than you do. Wanting it is obviously you have to be sadistic to want hardship. So again, we don't want hardship. Uh, we like to have a pleasant life that's full of blessing and to go to uh, the eternal world with even more blessings. But uh, what can we do that HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows that we cannot get to that uh, destiny 
without uh, to that destination, without uh, uh, some hardship along the way. So it's important for a person to understand that uh, when it comes down to hardship, when it comes down to difficulty, there's no one in the world that dealt with as much hardship as Avraham Avinu. And one of the things that we're introduced to, that's one of the most important stories that you're ever going to hear, is in this week's parasha, parashat Lech Lecha. Ve'yomer Adonai el Avram, Lech Lecha me'arcecha, me'moladetecha, u'mibet avicha el ha'aretz, asher ar'eka. Hashem says to Avram, go for yourself from your land, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land that I will show you. So here, Akadosh Baruch Hu is telling us, first and foremost, he's introducing us uh, to Avram Avinu, even though it already started at the end of last week's Parashat Noach, that we learned about uh, Avram being born and uh, taking on the, uh, um, uh, the, uh, his, uh, his uh, nephew, uh, coming with him and so on. But uh, again, this is the conversation. This is really the, uh, uh, the main part of the story really begins now. And uh, we see that right off the bat, Hashem is testing Avraham. So the first question is that the Rambam asks in his Morei Nebuchim. In Morei Nebuchim, in uh, chapter 3, section 50, uh, the Rambam asks, why does Hashem have stories in the Torah? Why didn't he make the Torah just simply full of rules? Because technically the Torah is instructions, instructions of how to live, instructions of what to do, to observe Shabbat, to, uh, to, to uh, uh, observe the, the, the Kashrut laws and family purity laws and all of the other different laws. That is actually what the Torah is. But our favorite part is the stories. So, of course, Hashem did not put the stories for entertainment value. And, but the question is, why did He put the stories? Answers the Rambam. The reason why Kadosh Baruch Hu included stories in the Torah is in order to teach us about Hashem's mannerisms. How does Hashem operate this world? The ways of God. The ways of God. How does Hashem run this world? And when a person understands the different ways of God, and of course there's no way to understand all of the ways of God, because if you would understand Him, you would be Him, but nonetheless, a person that understands the ways of God, the more he understands the ways of God, the clearer the, the decision process is in difficult times, the easier it is to overcome obstacles, and uh, certainly the happier the person is going to be. So we have here a story that begins with a test. And uh, we have to ask ourselves, where is this test coming from? And just like we were introduced to Avraham Avinu at the end of Parashat Noach, we're actually going to first delve into something that we'll answer and address later on uh, to, uh, as far as the question about hardship at the uh, Midrash in Parashat Noach. The Midrash Rabbah, Parashat Noach, in the uh, section 32, Siman 3. The Midrash says the following. It's written... In Psalm 11, verse 5, Hashem examines the righteous one, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. This is a verse in Tehilim, in Psalms, that Hashem examines the righteous, he tests them, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. So Rabbi Yonatan says, when examining 
his wares by knocking on them, the potter does not examine the weak flasks because he would not be able to strike them even once without breaking them. So which of them does he examine? The high quality flasks. For even if he were to strike them several times, they would not break. And so too, the Holy One blessed is he, does not test the wicked, rather he tests the righteous. As the verse says, Hashem examines the righteous one, but he despises the wicked and the lover of robbery. And as it also says in Parashat Lech Lecha, and it happened after these things that God tested Avraham and said to him, I'm sorry, it's in Parashat Vayera, and um, God tested Avraham and said to him, take your son, your only son whom you love, Yitzchak, and go to the land of Moriah, bring him up there, as a offering. This is in uh, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. So here we see a Midrash telling us outright, first and foremost, if you want to understand, just beginning to understand the, the ways of God, you have to understand that Hashem tests the righteous, meaning the more righteous a person is, the more Hashem tests him, and he hates the wicked people. And this is like an analogy that you could compare it to is that you could compare it to somebody that has pottery and he wants to test the pot you know so in the old days they would take it they would you know bang on it a few times to make sure that it's solid and then they would sell it so the same thing that Hashem does he takes the righteous people the strong pottery and he knocks on them a few times to make sure that they're strong he's not going to test the weaker ones he's not going to stand the wicked ones the weaker are the wicked. He's not going to test it. Why? Because he knows he hits them one time, they're going to break and shatter into 50 million pieces. So there's no point. There's no point of testing them. Hence the reason why he hates them, because they're defeating the purpose of life. Because the purpose of this life is for a person to build themselves through the tests of Hashem. But still the question is, why does Hashem have to test the righteous in the way that he does? What does he get out of it? What does he actually get out of it? I mean, technically, if he simply wants us to have good, he'll just give us good. If he wants to have us have bad, he'll just give us bad. That's the logic of mankind. You know, times, uh, time and time again, people tell me, listen, I know that God can give me such and such. God can give me a shiduch, uh, you know, wherever I live, in the middle of nowhere, or even in a bad uh, community. God can give me a job even if I don't look for one. God can give me this and God can give me that. So, you know, I, that's why I'm not even trying. Okay, that's fine. If you're not trying because you truly have 100% bitachon, meaning confidence in Hashem that He's going to provide it to you, then no problem. You are a very special person. You can wait in the middle of some cave and Hashem will send you a crow that will deliver the food to you like He did with Eliyahu Navi. But if you're worried the whole time that you're waiting, when's the food going to come? I'm thirsty, my stomach hurts, Nu Hashem, what's going on? Why don't I have a job? Why don't I have a wife? Why don't I have this? When is my conversion going to go through? When is I going to find my Shiduch? What if you're worried the whole time, then in reality, your confidence is really not confidence. Your bitachon is non-existent, you know, and perhaps if it does exist, it's certainly much smaller than you thought. Because having confidence in Hashem means that you have no worry whatsoever. But you're mistaken Hashem's ability with your confidence. 
where you're thinking that if Hashem is able to do something, therefore he'll do it because you believe that he can do it. But that's not bitachon. That's just you wanting to win the lotto. What bitachon is, is to believe that Hashem will do it for you. And therefore you don't have to worry about it. But so long as you have worries, you obviously have to have some type of ishtadlut, some type of effort in order to entice Hashem to do whatever it is that you want Him to do for you. And the reality is when a person mistakes Hashem's ability for their own bitachon, they could sit there and starve to death thinking, oh, well, I trusted Hashem and He let me down. And they'll have all types of excuses of why they're upset at Hashem for giving them such a test and not giving them the answer. When all this time, the answer was actually in their hand. They simply needed to do something in order to get the answer. So the test here that we see from Avram Avinu is that we see that Avram is a special person. He's quoted in Parashat Noach in the Midrash that he is the example of Hashem's tests. He is the example of Hashem's test. And in fact, the Mishnah in uh, Masechet Avot in uh, chapter 5, uh, Mishnah Dalit, it says, Asara nisyonot nisnasa Avraham Avinu ve'amad bekulam leodia kama chibato shel Avraham Avinu. This is in our Perkei Avot series for anyone who hasn't listened to them in a while. Certainly it's worth to listen again. Our Mishnah in chapter 5, Mishnah number 4, it says that our forefather Avraham was tested with 10 trials and he withstood all of them to show the degree of our forefather Avram's love for God. So we see that Avram, as a result of overcoming these tests, it was established that Avram got to the highest level of fear of heaven and which was loving Hashem. Loving Hashem. But the question still remains, why does Hashem test us? And in fact, where did it all start with Avram Avinu? So then we go to the Midrash Rabbah, in Parashat Lech Lecha. And we're introduced to Avram. We're introduced to Avram. We see where, where does this whole start. So Hashem says to Avram, go for yourself, go from your land, like we said before. And here Avram Avinu is being introduced to HaKadosh Baruch Hu in a very different way. A very different way than he knew up till now. Why? Because up till now, he knew the idea of Hashem. And it all started when Avram Avinu started as a young boy and this young boy simply looked at the creation and he saw that the people are destroying the world. People are destroying the world. They're worshipping idols. They're stealing. They're raping. They're, they're, they're corrupt in every way, shape or form. Very much like certain parts of the world today, unfortunately. And he said, well, at the same time where there's so much corruption here, the creation itself is magnificent. You have the stars and the moon and, and the sun and the, 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 the ecosystem. And you have all of these extraordinary things. Could it be that the owner of this palace is, has left? Could it be that this world that was created was simply left to be destroyed. And the Midrash says, and the owner of the palace peered out to him and said to him, I am the master of the palace. I am the master of the palace. Why? 
because the Midrash says this is like someone that saw that there was a palace burning on fire. Extraordinary, huge palace, and it seems like no one is doing anything to stop it. There is nobody there. So the person is wondering, is there an owner to this palace that's on fire? And then the owner of the palace taps him on the shoulder and says, yeah, yeah, I'm the owner of the palace and I am the one that's allowing it to be burned. Meaning, I'm fully aware of what's happening here. And that's in essence what Akadosh Baruch Hu did when he first spoke to Avraham Avinu. I am the master of the palace and so too, because of our forefather, Avraham said to himself, upon seeing this constant destruction of the world that was taking place, shall you say that this world is without a supervisor? And therefore the Holy One, uh, blessed is he, peeked out and said to him, I am the master of the world. Now, the next verse, the next section of this Tehilim is quoting a verse, next version is the Midrash, is quoting a verse in Tehilim. And it says, then the king will desire your beauty and he is your master. So bow to him. So the king will desire your beauty means that God will desire and beautify, meaning glorify Avraham in the eyes of the world. So bow to him and be his servant. Right off the bat, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Avraham Avinu, now that you and I have met on more intimate terms where you're, we're speaking to each other, you're speaking to me, Follow what I say. Leave your father's house. Leave your place of comfort. Leave your panasah. Leave everything and go to where I tell you. And I will glorify your name. Now when does this all happen? Is this the first, this is happening right off the bat when Avraham Avinu is a little boy? No. This is happening after a whole realm of tests. A whole realm of tests that are unlike any other. And this is one of the things we'll discuss now. The Mishnah brings this down where it says that Avram was tested in 10 different ways. There's a machloket, a debate among the Chachamim, which are the actual test, 10 tests that Avram was tested with because he was tested literally millions of times. So which are the 10 tests? Rashi brings down that the first test that Avram uh, had was when he was a little boy and he destroyed the statues of his father Terach. Terach thought that, you know, what uh, his son did was terrible and he had loyalty to Nimrod, the, uh, the, the idolater Nimrod, that turned himself into an idol and he told Nimrod. So Nimrod said, we have to kill this boy. So Terach realized what he just did, and instead of uh, giving his son uh, Avraham to uh, Nimrod, the Midrash says that Nimrod, that uh, Terach, Avraham's father, gave uh, uh, a different child. One of his uh, maidservants, one of his Canaanite maidservants, uh, had a son at the same time, and he gave that baby to Nimrod, that child to Nimrod, and said, hey, take this one, take this one. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm sorry. The uh, the test is actually when uh, Avram was born. When Avram was born, before he actually destroyed the the statue. So first, the first test was the fact that Avram had to be taken already as a child, as a baby, and be hidden in a cave for how long? For 13 years. 
says Rashi. 13 years this baby is hidden inside a cave. And again, you could say, yeah, but Rabbi Shimon Bayochai was in a cave. Rabbi Shimon Bayochai was in a cave, but he was an adult and he was with somebody. Whereas Avram was by himself. As soon as this little boy grows up a little bit, goes outside of the cave, sees the creation, sees the moon, sees the sky, starts you know, praying to it because he thought that initially maybe, maybe the, the, the sky is, the, is, is God, the moon is God, the uh, sun is God, but every time he saw something change, he realized that someone else is in control of this. Then he analyzed things even further and he saw how people are destroying the world and he realized that there has to be a creator to the world, but perhaps he left, but how could he leave his creation? And he was the first one, the Midrash says, he was the first one to call Hashem Lord, my master. He is the first one to call Hashem my master, and that's why we the first blessing that we say in uh, uh, in Amidah three times a day that uh, we're blessed in uh, in uh, Avraham's name. Why? Because he's the first one that called Hashem my master. So now, the first test we already see that Avraham Avinu is thrown into a cave as a little boy, no childhood, no playing, no school, no friends, no nothing. Go hide in the cave so Nimrod doesn't kill you. As soon as he comes out, he sees there are statues in his father's house. He destroys the statues. Nimrod finds out about this and simply tells him, either you bow to the statues or I'm going to throw you into a fire. Now at this point, Avram has not spoken to Hashem. He knows there's a Hashem. He knows there's a God. But he has no idea how it all works. All he knows is that God is certainly not these statues. God is much greater than you can possibly imagine. He's in charge of all creation. He's the, he's the creator of all creations. And certainly I'm not willing to bow to anything else other than God. And at that moment, HaKadosh Baruch Hu says to, the, to his uh, ministering angels, If Avraham stands there like a, like a uh, piece of steel... Then I will save him out of this a uh, out of this uh, fire by putting silver around him, in essence, glorifying him in this world and for eternity. If he cannot withstand the test, I'll still protect him, but only in this world. After that, he's in essence on his own, and he's not going to have any uh, a major part in my eternal world as far as to start the nation and so on. And that's what the Midrash says. So now, Rabotai, Avraham Avinu is now starting this life, going into a cave. After that, seeing his own father betray him and then thrown into the fire. And if that's not enough, after he's thrown into the fire and everyone sees that HaKadosh Baruch Hu saved him, Nimrod, sees that this is not somebody that you can mess with. He, if I la- allow him to stay here, uh, then he could easily become the next god. He could easily take my position. So he says, just leave. I'll give you whatever you want. Just get out of here. And he even gives him his son, Eliezer. Eliezer was the son of Nimrod, the Chachamim say. And Nimrod, who at this point knew the truth, did not want to abandon his idolatry because he said, listen, I'm the king over here, I have money, I have power, I have everything, I'm not leaving it. But you, my son, go with, uh, go with this Avram. It's better to be his servant 
than the next king after me. And he gives him his son Eliezer. And Eliezer becomes the servant of Avraham, and he becomes an extraordinary Talmud Chacham. The Gemara says that Eliezer got to a point where any time that Avraham was not able to give the Shi'ul Torah, Eliezer was at a point that he would give the Shi'ul Torah. And even his imagery, even his looks, even his looks started looking like Avraham, where people weren't able to tell the difference. And Eliezer is one of the ten people that never died, went into Gan Eden alive. And in fact, one of the extraordinary stories that uh, is, is told is a well-known story by uh, uh, the, the life of uh, Rabbi Avraham Azulai, the great-grandfather of the Chida, was that uh, at the time uh, that uh, Rabbi Avraham Azulai made, you know, left uh, Spain with the Spanish Inquisition, with all of the death and horror that happened over there, he abandoned everything with his family, made the journey, eventually got to Eretz Yisrael, started, uh, you know, the uh, yeshiva over there, started, you know, the, the Bet Midrash, learning Torah, Kabbalah. He was an extraordinary Mekubal. And one day, there was a, uh, uh, a Turkish king that uh, came to Eretz Yisrael and uh, went to visit the Me'arat uh, the cave of Me'arat of our forefathers, Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And uh, they went into the cave, and uh, this king had a very fancy sword that was full of special diamonds on it. And to show, you know, his, his, uh, his, his glory and so on, when he went into the cave, he took out, uh, uh, you know, he, uh, he took out his uh, sword, you know, show it to people, show off. And when he peeked into a certain section that everyone told him that you're not allowed to go in there, this is where the actual graves are, as soon as he peeked in, his sword fell out of where was the holder and went inside this, this place. So now he said, okay, we're not allowed to go in there, but uh, we need to get the sword. So the, the people that were there, the Arabs that were uh, giving him the tour says, no, no, your highness, we can't go there. Everybody that goes there doesn't come out. So of course the king was not accept this and he said, okay, tie one of my soldiers, he'll go get the sword. They tied the soldier, lowered the soldier into the hole. The second that he was lowered into the hole, they heard screaming and yelling. They pulled him up, the soldier was dead. Obviously everybody is mystified, has no idea what's going on, but the king cares less about the life of one of his measly soldiers. Quickly they tie another soldier, lower him into the cave, Seconds later, screaming, yelling, they pull a corpse, the body of the soldier, the soldier is dead. And that continued one after another until the king finally got his brain back and realized, okay, this is not working out. What do we do? How do I get my sword? So the Arab said, listen, perhaps you could get one of the Yehuds, one of the Jews, the, 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 the holy Jews, maybe they can help you. So the king made a decree, if you, you guys don't bring me a Jew that can bring my sword, I'm killing everybody, all the Jews, like as if it's our fault. And it's been the tradition of the Arabs ever since, it's not a new thing. From their, from their, from their beginning they were wicked, until today they are wicked. Not all of them, certainly there are some that are decent, but nonetheless the, uh, the leaders are certainly have always been consistently wicked 
for the most part, with the exceptions of some kings like the ones in Morocco and uh, others that have lived throughout times that were more decent. But the majority, like today, have been haters of Am Yisrael, as that's part of their role in the world. Now, of course, the community knew the tradition. They knew that you're not allowed to go inside to where the, where the actual graves are. This is not a place to, uh, uh, to, to mess with, but at the same token, they have a decree by this evil king. If they don't give him one of the Jews to, to go get this uh, uh, sword, everyone's going to die anyway. So, Rabbi Avraham Azulai, Alava Shalom, Kodesh Kodeshim says, I'll go. He's an old man. Mekubal, Mekudash, he says, I'll go with no problem. And he comes to the uh, cave of Ma'achpelah after purifying himself throughout the whole night with learning Torah, learning Kabbalah, going to the mikveh, extraordinary purification process. And he says, I'm ready to go. He sees the sword from the top. They tie him. He gets lowered, and they don't hear any screams. Quickly he gets down, and he sees the sword, picks up the sword and ties it back to the rope. He picks up his head, and he sees a man. A big man, a holy man. And this man asks him, Who are you? And who gave you permission to be here? And he tells him, My master, I am... I am... Uh, Avraham Azulai, I wanted to come and uh, there was a decree, but since I'm already here, I wanted to see my forefathers. Who are you? He says, I am Eliezer, Eved Avraham, and I am in charge of guarding the cave. He says, can I go see? Can I go see uh, the, the, the cave? He says, first I have to go ask Avraham Avinu. Wait here. If you're holy enough to survive standing here and talking to me, then certainly there's something, but I have to first ask my master, Avraham Avinu. Eliezer leaves him for a moment and come back moments later and says to him, Avraham Avinu says you can come see him. And Rabbi Avraham Azulai comes into the cave and he tells the story. He lived to tell the story. He speaks to Avraham Avinu, Yitzhak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu. He sees them. He sees them. We're not talking about he's alive 4,000 years ago. We're talking about 450 years ago, 500 years ago. Rabbi Avraham Azulai sees Avraham Avinu, Yitzhak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu in the Kiev of Machpelah. And he says to them, please, I saw you. I, I, I cannot go back to this regular world, this Kedusha, this beauty. I, I cannot leave you. Please take me with you. Allow me to stay here with you. Avraham Avinu laughs and says to them, my dear son, I promise you, you go tell people what you saw here, so there's going to be a sanctification of HaKadosh Baruch Hu's name, and tomorrow you will be with us. And that's exactly what happened as Rabbi Avraham Azulai went back up with the sword, gave it to the, the Turkish king There was an extraordinary Kiddush Hashem. He told his family in the different parts of the Keilah about the story that I just told you. This, is, this story itself was told by his grand grandson Rabbi uh, uh, Rabbi Chaim Yosef uh, uh, Azulai, um, Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Chaim Yosef uh, uh, David Azulai, the Chida, the Holy Chida, which later on 
was put into many other books, and this is actually I heard in Soina Yisefel by the great, 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 great grandson that lives today and has written many books, Baruch Hashem, uh, his grandson also, one of the Rabbanim of the, the Azulai family, and Rabotai, that night he told them, and that night, HaKadosh Baruch Hu took back his Neshama, and surely he is with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. So, you see here, Rabotai, that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives certain tests to certain people, and in the beginning it looks like a disaster, it looks like a decree. It looked like there was a decree on the Jewish community at that time, but that decree ended up becoming a Kiddush Hashem. Avraham Avinu is being told by HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself, leave everything after you have suffered the pain and agony of being in a cave without knowing who, what, when, and how, being thrown into a fire, because you stood like a steel, like a steel wall, I protected you. And now that you're seeing this whole world being destroyed and you're asking a question, I'm talking to you. And now that I'm talking to you, I'm talking to you because it's time for you to follow me completely. Go exactly to where I tell you and I'm going to bring you all the blessings that can possibly be. Fine. So Avraham Avinu goes. And instead of arriving at a place of blessings... He arrives at a place of famine. There's no food. So he's being tested to leave his family. He has to move twice. These are a couple of his tests. Once he arrives, you know, moving is not easy. The Gemara says that moving is much more difficult for the husband than it is for the wife. I could vouch for this. Uh, and certainly, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Avraham Avinu that he has to move. And that's not where the test ends because as soon as he arrives in Knaan, in Eretz Yisrael, instead of arriving at blessings like a Kadosh Baruch Hu promised, he arrives at a test, at a famine, which he has to leave now and go to Egypt. Then after that, he has a test with his two sons. Rashi says that one of the tests was actually to marry Hagar, to listen to his wife, uh, uh, Sarah, that gave, her, gave him her maidservant because she saw that she's already old and no babies, no nothing, to at least marry Hagar and have a, a child with her. So this was a test in itself for Avraham Avinu. But nonetheless, it's not even the beginning. Because after Yitzchak is born, Sarah sees that Ishmael, Avraham's other son with Hagar, is a wicked person that's doing things that are against the Torah, against Hashem. And she tells Avraham to kick him out. Now this is his son. It's not her son, but it's his son. Avraham has, has a very difficult time, but HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells Avraham, listen to your wife. Listen to your wife, don't worry, I'm going to bless him. I'm going to bless Ishmael too. But listen to your wife. So he's tested. He's tested with this, he's also tested in regards to his wives. Aside from the whole Hagar story, the time after he left famine in Canaan, we see in this week's parasha, he goes to Egypt. And as we discussed last night, as soon as he arrives to Egypt, instead of, welcome, thank you for coming, we heard about you, what do they do? They take Avraham Avinu's wife and they give, him to, give her to Paro. 
Paro wants to rape her. Of course, Hakadosh Baruch did not let this happen. He sent Sarai Menu angels. The Midrash says that he sent her angels, and she simply told those angels to beat the hell out of him. Until Paro realized that he has to get these people out of his palace as soon as possible, and he gives them millions of dollars to do it. Please just leave. Please leave. But still, nonetheless, this happens to Avraham. Imagine the night that he had, where he knows that the love of his life, his dear wife, the modest, the beautiful wife that he has, Sarai Menu, that he's been with for decades, is in a prison with somebody. What kind of, what kind of thoughts are going through his head? The Mishnah says, no thoughts. He passed these tests like a champion. No questions about Hashem, no doubts about Hashem. How? How? How do you do that? If that's not enough, next week we're going to learn that Avraham Avinu's wife, Sarah, gets taken again by Avimelech. And later on, when Yitzchak is born, people think that Yitzchak was actually the son of Avimelech. And they make fun. They make fun. They're saying, ah, look, Avraham is still married to this woman that had a baby with somebody else. And Akadosh Baruch Hu makes a miracle that the face of Yitzchak literally changed to become identical to Avraham to the point where the Torah says, Avraham olided Yitzchak. Avraham gave birth to Yitzchak because they looked so similar, it's as if he gave him birth. In order to make sure that nobody has any doubt in their mind that he is Avraham Avinu's son because Akadosh Baruch Hu is willing to forsake his own name, if you will, and allow people the time to do tshuva, but he's not allowed, but he's not, he does not allow for his sages, for his chachamim, for his servants, for his loyal servants, the Avram, the Yitzhak, the Yaakov, the Moshe Rabbeinu, the Aaron HaKohen, the David HaMelech, the chachamim, the Gdolei Ador, he does not allow them to be forsaken by people. And therefore, he literally changed nature for that king. But still, it's another test. His wife is taken. Imagine the night that he has. Thinking about such a thing. Well, we can imagine. I mean, according to the, to the Mishnah, there's no night. He simply has no questions. He's perfectly fine. But we wouldn't survive five minutes. Sometimes your spouse says he's going to go to the store or he's uh, going to be home soon and they're late. Five minutes beyond the time that you thought they're supposed to be home. Already you're texting them. Are you okay? Are you okay? Yeah, honey, I'm on the way. Well, why are you late? What do you mean late? I, I told you I'll be back in 15 minutes. Yeah, it's been 16 and a half minutes, honey. What's going on? Is there somebody other than me? What? What are you talking about? I went to get bread and cookies. What do you want? I'm coming. I'm on. I just parked. Are you sure? Is everything okay? Are you telling me everything? Unfortunately, some people are married to such people. They're married to such people that literally cannot stand, cannot stand if their husband or their wife is late by half a second. You said you're going to be home. It's already 8.15. You said you're going to be home at 8. What's going on? I was in a shiur Torah, honey. Okay, shiur Torah ended when? When? It ended at 7.45. What did you do since then? Oh, you're talking to your friends again? Are you married to your friends? Honey, I, I don't know. I'm on the way home. I'll be home soon. Well, maybe you want to marry your friends and just sleep over there. Unfortunately, some people marry to such people. Avraham Avinu was not married to such a thing. He was married to Sarai Menu, Tzadikah Ketoshah. 
צדיקה קדושה. Of course, in this week's parasha, we see another one of Avraham Avinu's tests where the very same nephew, Lot, that he raised, that he protected, that he provided for, abandons him, goes against him because he thinks that he could do better without him, only to find out shortly later that after the war of the kings, the four kings against the five kings, part of the thing that happened was that one of the kings realized, Chadal Omel realized, that hey, this is Avram over here. Because Lot looked like Avram. And he wanted the whole world to know that he has Avram as a prisoner because Avram already became very famous. So they took Lot as a prisoner thinking that he is Avram Avinu. So no one can go back, go to uh, and do tshuva anymore. Avram Avinu knew that he has to save Lot. Not just because he's his nephew, but because he did not want the world to think that these idolaters have a Eved Hashem as a prisoner. So he went and he fights these kings. Then you have the covenant. The covenant that we see at the end of this week's parasha. The Ben Abetarim. Where Avraham Avinu gets a prophecy and he's told that his descendants will be slaves. For 400 years. 400 years of being slaves. And if that's not enough, HaKadosh Baruch Hu tells them, now I want you to, at 99 years old, cut off a piece of your body, a piece of the most sensitive part of your body, circumcise yourself, because although you are great, you are not perfect until you circumcise yourself. You're deficient so long as you have this Ola. And this Rabotai was a test in itself. Avraham Avinu had to circumcise everyone in his household, all of his servants, his son Ishmael, Yitzhak wasn't born yet, and he had to circumcise himself. Now just the thought of such a thing is unimaginable. I know one person that told me that he circumcised himself, I asked him if he instituted himself after because it doesn't seem very normal to me, but perhaps there, this person has a lot more spiritual strength than I could even imagine. But Avraham Avinu circumcised himself. Chachamim say in the Gemara that HaKadosh Baruch Hu was holding his hand when he was circumcising him. He was holding his hand, helping him circumcise himself. Whatever that means, I don't know. But you see here, Rabotai, that the tests of Avraham were unimaginable. And there are many, many other tests. Many other tests. We all get tests. Avraham Avinu got tests. But the Mishnah testifies here that Avraham got all of these tests, regardless of which ones are the tests. At the end of the Akedah, where he puts his son Yitzchak, his favorite son, the son that Hashem promised him, to have the, the, all of his continuation from, all of his blessing from. The one that's going to turn into a whole nation of holy people. He's told that he has to bring him as an offering. His son is 37 years old. Yitzhak is 37 years old. He's not a baby. He's being tested with this. After this test, 
הקדוש ברוך הוא says to Abraham, אתה ידעתי כי יראה אלוקים אתה, now I know that you fear me. Now you know I fear you? What about the other te- million and a half tests? No, no, this is a different level of fear. You had fear then, but this is a different level of fear. You're now at the highest level of fear of Hashem. Which Chachamim say that fear, that highest level of fear of Hashem, the awe of Hashem is even higher than loving Hashem. Something beyond our comprehension. The connection that Avram had. And he withstood all these tests and showed that he loves Hashem. So now, if it were you and me, we'd ask ourselves, wait a minute, I started keeping Torah and Mitzvot, and in the beginning, maybe things got better, or they didn't. Some people tell me that right away, good things start happening to them after they start keeping Torah and Mitzvot. Other people, the opposite, where they see a lot of tests. And we complain, we say, wait, why is Hashem doing this to me? Why does Hashem take the money? Why does Hashem take the girl? Why does Hashem take this? Why does Hashem cause that problem? Everybody asks this question. But then we learn about Avram, and Avram did a whole lot more than we could ever imagine. He fought against idolatry, he jumped into the fire. He converted millions of people made the monotheistic to the point where he literally became a nation already, only to be told to leave them where they were and go to a different place, and later on to find out that those students that he helped become monotheistic, abandoned God and went back to their idolatry. What a letdown, what a disappointment. You worked so hard, you built the shiur up, you got from nothing, now you have 10, 20, 50, 100, 200 people watching your shoe. You're breaking your head. People started keeping Shabbat. People got married to, to good people. People started doing all the good things. And then all of a sudden, everybody leaves. What a disappointment. You try it again. You build it up. And then everybody leaves again. You don't even know why they're leaving. Maybe it's because some wicked rabbi said something. Maybe it's because of uh, they, they feel like they already know more than you or they know enough. Or whatever the reason is, you build it up again. And they build up and they say thank you and they say we love you and they say you changed our life. And because of you I got married and because of you I did tshuva and because of you I have Shabbat and because of you I converted and because of you I did this and because of you I did that only to leave you and abandon you and abandon the God that they're actually serving. Avraham Avinu had this happen to him on a much larger scale than anybody else out there. Literally countless people that he converted, abandoned everything. That's why it says in the Mishnah that, that Avram took the merits of all ten generations between Noach and him. Why did Avram take all of the merits? Because he helped them do tshuva. They discovered what the truth is. They abandoned the truth. All of their merits, all of their shares of Olam Abba went to him. This is one of the no-lose situations that HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives to someone that does Kiruv. You help somebody do tshuva by showing them the truth. You put real effort behind it. You put your heart behind it. You really look to help them. You show them what the truth is. If they reject it, guess what? Their share of Olam goes to you. If they accept it and they do tshuva, 
you get an additional 310 worlds. So it's a much greater benefit if they do tshuva. But if they abandon it, they don't want it anymore, everything goes to you. Either way, you win. Why? You cared about Hashem's children, that means you win. Automatically, you win. That's why I always tell people the greatest investment that a person can possibly do with their money, with their resources of time, of skill, of everything, is to invest as much as possible into Kiruv. But not just any Kiruv, but Kiruv that actually works, that actually changes people from being wicked, from going against Hashem, from having bad morals, from having bad ethics, to being servants of Hashem. That type of cube is very hard to find, but Baruch Hashem, we merited to have countless students do tshuva over the years, and the investors behind us that have helped us, helped those people, whether they invested 50 or $100 a month, or they invested thousands or more, or whatever it was, those people have no idea how profitable their portfolio is. And that's why I tell everybody to invest as much as possible, as, as, as much as they can, into Kiev on a regular basis and not just as a one-time excited basis because there's nothing greater than that. Because whether the people do tshuva or not, you automatically win because you tried. There is no other thing in the world that operates in this fashion. Now, Tzedakah, the Gemara says that if somebody loses money, let's say money falls out of their pocket and some poor homeless guy finds it, it still calculates as Tzedakah even though you didn't intend for that person to uh, uh, to find it. You didn't intend to give it to a homeless person. Still, the outcome was that some poor guy is eating due to your money. Hashem will give you a blessing of tzedakah on it. But when it comes to kiruv, it's not just, oh, you didn't do anything and you made an accident and you end up winning. No, no, you failed. Meaning, you tried to help somebody do tshuva. You sent them the Hashem Took Back His Millions movie. You sent them the Gano movie. You sent them Tikkun Abrit movie. You sent them the lecture that we're doing today. Whatever you did, you did it time and time again. You gave them a USB. You invested money. You invested time to try to help people. You arranged a shiur. You brought all types of people. People that are frum, but not frum enough. People that are really frum but want to be even frumer. People that are completely secular. People that are intermarriage. All types of people you brought to the shiurim. You tried to help all of those people. Guess what? The second you put your effort into it, your money into it, your, your expertise into it, the second you did it, you've already won. Why? Because if they listen and they do tshuva, you have a share in every single mitzvah that they will ever do. You have a share in every single mitzvah that they will ever do for eternity. Them, their spouse, their children, their descendants forever. Literally, it's like buying a penny stock and that penny stock turns into Amazon. That penny stock turns into Berkshire Hathaway. That penny stock turns into uh, some, one of the companies that simply just goes up and never goes down. Apple or something. It literally, it's a start, you buy it at a penny and it just never stops going up. That's, you just, you put your few thousand dollars into Kirov, you've already won. You're going to say, wait, so if I could just do it once, I'm already a winner. Why should I continue doing it? Because the more you understand how significant it is, how real it is, why would you invest anywhere else? A person that truly believes what I just said would literally make an effort 
to invest in Tikiruv more than anything else, more than helping the poor, more than helping the uh, the local synagogue or buying a Sefer Torah, more than uh, buying fancy cars or fancy houses, more than anything, because it's literally the investment that never stops paying off. Even if you just tried and failed, needless to say, if you succeeded where you actually gave that money to a place that actually helped people do tshuva, that gives hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of USBs and books for free. Happens to be right now all over the country. We're on our way to uh, Seattle right now. We just got out of Sodom, which is also called uh, San Francisco. And now we're on our way to Seattle. We'll be there by tomorrow, Bezlat Hashem. Giving hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of books and USBs for free. No questions asked. Just take it, listen to it, and thank you very much. We don't want any money. If you want to donate, you're welcome to, but we don't ask for donations. We simply do what we do because it's good to do good because that's what's going to sanctify Hashem's name. You had a share of it because you invested that money that allowed us to buy the USBs, that allowed us to make the lectures, that allowed us to pay the uh, you know countless employees and programmers and lawyers and accountants and all the other wonderful people that are behind the scenes that no one ever sees. You helped us finance all of that. You've already won because if any one of these people that pick up the USB today or over the last few weeks we've been giving them out or tomorrow or the next day, they press play, you've already won a, another share of Olam Abba. Why? Because they're already starting to do Chua by listening to Torah. Now, if they actually change their life even more, they continue listening, they take on more mitzvot, your Olam Abba just gets greater and greater and greater. And literally, there's nothing else in the world you can compare it to. Nothing in the world you can compare it to. Now, of course, there's a, uh, investing into an avrech, into a kola that learns Torah. But again, unless that avrech is like our own dear Rav Ephraim, or our own dear Rav Shavit, the Rosh Kolel, that study day and night. I don't even know if they sleep anymore, even if they're considered humans, or the other avrechim that in our kola that literally toil for Torah endlessly, unless you have somebody serious like that, that you know, you've seen, you know exactly what these people are doing, you could be investing into somebody that smokes cigarettes for half the day. So, unfortunately, it's not the same. And even if you have a great avrech, there's nothing greater than Kiruv because that avrech at best is learning a lot of Torah and you have all of his mitzvot. or You have a share in his Torah, depending on how much you invest. Whereas when it comes to Kiruv, when it comes to Kiruv, Every single mitzvah that person makes, the person they marry makes, their children make, their descendants make, all of that goes into your account. And literally, this is an endless, an endless olam haba. Hence the reason why the Gemara says that when Rabbi Akadosh, Rabbi Udanasi, saw, apparently saw in Shemaim, how Akadosh Bahu is treating his nephew, which was his Talmid, Rabbi Chia, where Rabbi Chia has special rules, unlike any other where all of the righteous people are able to visit each other in heaven, but they have to have ministering angels take them from their worlds to different worlds. Rabbi Chia doesn't have any ministering angels taking him anywhere. Why? He doesn't need permission. He walks wherever he wants, whenever he wants, like he owns Olam Abba, like he owns heaven. Why? Because Rabbi Chia did Kiruv. Literally something that is unimaginable. Unimaginable. And there are also different stories in the Gemara, Masechet Moed Katan, and other places that talk about Kiruv and how significant it is and how significant the people that did it and do it are. Now, when a person understands this, they understand that Avraham Avinu is the ultimate Kiruv rabbi. He literally made millions of people do tshuva. 
only to be disappointed that they all abandoned it. They left it. Why the rabbi moved to a different town? They decided that they need a different God. What does one thing have to do with the other? No one knows. But unfortunately, for them, it wasn't unfortunate necessarily for Avram because even though it was a very big letdown, Avram continued and ended up meriting taking all of their olamabats. Now going back to our question, Rabotai, if Avram is so great and he followed Hashem, why is HaKadosh Baruch Hu giving him tests? So difficult, taking his wife and, and testing with the children and everything else that we just talked about for the last hour almost. Why is Hashem doing this to him? Needless to say, why is Hashem testing us? Why does He give a person that's doing tshuva and doing everything, problems with all types of things? Why is He giving you a test and you a test and you a test? Why? Why is He doing this to us? We already heard it in Parashat Noach in the Midrash. We already heard it, but we didn't understand it. The Midrash says that Akadosh Baruch Hu examines the tzaddikim, the righteous people, and he despises the wicked. And Rabbi Yonatan says, this is something that is part of the rules of the world that Hashem created. Hashem tests these tzaddikim. He loves them and therefore He tests them. And you compare it to a pottery where the owner of this pottery tested but the Chachamim say, wait a minute, wait, is, is, is this person that made this pottery, why, he just keeps tapping on all of his good potteries and the bad ones, he just leaves them? No. Which ones does he do it to? The good ones. But for what? If he already knows they're good. Says the Mahazu. The owner of the pottery, he's not testing it for himself. He's testing it for his customer. Customer came. Wants to buy this pottery. Pottery costs money. He says, listen, it's worth the money. I know it looks expensive, but this is the best. How? Let me show you. You could smash it with a hammer, nothing's going to happen to it. This is the best pottery there is. The customer is enamored by this. I'll take two. Such is the way of Hashem. Wakadosh Balhu wants the world, wants the world to see how great his tzaddikim are. And therefore he tests the tzaddikim, the righteous people, not for his own sake. He already knows the tzaddikim. But in order to publicly demonstrate their tzaddikut, their righteousness, so that people will understand why. HaKadosh Baruch Hu loves them so much. Why these people are so special? So people can see that they're tzaddikim and learn from them. That's why HaKadosh Baruch Hu tests them. If HaKadosh Baruch Hu is testing you, it's simply a sign that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling you, I love you and I want other people to know I love you. But they need to know, why do I love you? And then they'll see how you overcame these tests and despite the problems with Panasah and with divorce and with the kids and with the school and with the health and with the money and with the this and with the that, you stuck with me, you still went to shul, you still learned Torah, you still taught the Torah, you still di distributed all types of things to help people do tshuva. You still did everything. Ah, that's why Kadosh Baruch Hu loves him and that's why Kadosh Baruch Hu gave him these blessings, 
the children and the wife and the this. That eventually everything works out. You see, oh, it's Avram Avinu. Yeah, everybody knows Avram Avinu today. But if you would have seen Avram Avinu a few thousand years ago, about to be thrown into the fire, what would you have said? Ah, poor Avraham. Today it's easy to say, oh, Avraham Avinu, he's my forefather. Would you have said that back then? Probably not. Why? Because it looks like he was a loser back then. But he really was a winner already then. He was already a winner back then, but you didn't know it until HaKadosh Baruch Hu had him thrown into the fire. Until HaKadosh Baruch Hu made him sacrifice his son nearly. Until HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave him all of these tests. When HaKadosh Baruch Hu is doing the same thing to you, when HaKadosh Baruch Hu is still doing the same thing to all of us, what is he telling us? You are the descendant of Avraham Avinu. And just like I showed Avraham Avinu how much I love him, and therefore, I tested them to show other people I love him. I'm doing the same thing for you. So why don't you say, I love you back to Hashem. And stop complaining. This Rabotai is one of the most important lessons that a person can learn. When they're dealing with difficulties. Most importantly, dealing with difficulties that are really testing their faith. Testing their faith, it's very easy for the Yetzirah to tell you that you're making a mistake by following Hashem. But the truth is that if you learn from our Holy Torah, you'll know that there is no such thing as Hashem doesn't love you if you're doing the right thing. It's quite the opposite. When you're doing the right thing, Hashem will want to show you how much He loves you. And many times that's going to come in a form of tests. And if you withstand the test, eventually you'll merit to see the blessings. And the blessings of Hashem are unlike any other. With that being said, there are many other things we can discuss, but I know that some of you want to ask questions. So Bezat Hashem, we'll get a drink right now and then allow you guys to ask as many questions as you'd like that Hashem will give us the strength to answer. Bezat Hashem. Let's see. All right. So we have uh, okay. Question. Jack is asking. Uh, question, Rabbi Reuven. This new Mashiach guy in Israel is he legit? Being the big rabbi, support him. Uh, we don't have a Mashiach in the world today. Uh, one of the promises that Hashem makes uh, in the Torah is that on that big day where the Mashiach is announced to everybody. There will be no doubt, meaning everyone is going to know that he is Mashiach, including his enemies, including everybody else. There's not going to be any questions. There's not going to be, is he legit or not? Maybe he is, maybe he's not. He's going to be certain that he's Mashiach. Of course, there's a uh, 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 also a prophecy that Eliyahu Navi, the prophet Eliyahu Navi, will come three days before. Some Chachamim say that Eliyahu Navi could even come on the same day as the Mashiach, meaning he's going to announce him. Everyone, Rabotai, Mashiach is coming in three days. Okay, everybody does whatever they can to prepare for the Mashiach. Or some Chachamim say, Eliyahu Navi says, introducing Mashiach. And Mashiach is right next to him, and you have all the beautiful things that happen after that. But the point being is, is that when Mashiach is really Mashiach, first of all, everyone will agree. There's not going to be 
part of people that are not going to agree or this, no, no such thing. Everyone will know. That's number one. Number two, anyone that says that they are Mashiach right now is certainly not Mashiach. Why? Because this is not something for them to say. This is not something the Mashiach would have to say. This is something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu already has been preparing since before creation. So anyone that says they're Mashiach, that in itself is a proof that they're not Mashiach. Now, of course, there are many fools out there that are either too idealistic, too ignorant, or just simply stupid, that they think that anyone that's popular or gets rabbinical support or looks a certain way or says something specific or died and maybe he's going to come back, whatever people conjure up in their crooked minds that are lacking Torah, they think everybody's Mashiach every other day. I understand that there is a Talmud Chacham in Eretz Yisrael that for whatever reason he's being uh, 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 embarrassed uh, because really it is an embarrassment that fools are calling him Mashiach. He certainly never said that he's Mashiach, uh, but uh, there are some fools that say that he is. But that's because people don't know Torah, they don't know anything, and uh, they're idealistic, and quite frankly, many of them are idol worshippers. So, uh, no, there is no Mashiach in the world today that is an established Mashiach, uh, but nonetheless, when that time will come, everyone will know, and you will not have to ask the question, if he is or if he isn't, because everyone will know that he is, whoever that person ends up being. Next question, is it healthy to be constantly afraid that the Mashiach is arriving at any moment? Uh, unlike the Mashiach Now movement, I'm definitely not looking forward to it to happen anytime soon, since I still have an extraordinary amount of things to do tshuva for. And I'm not very happy with the idea of paying for my sins in a rather scarier, more painful way. So one of the 13 principles of faith is that we have to believe that the Mashiach can come at any given day. Now this is not just a belief as far a, a, a principle of faith just for you to have the faith uh, that he will uh, come, but also it's, a, uh, it's, it's, it's something that's important for a person to live their life in such a fashion where because they know that the Mashiach can come at any given moment, therefore they don't waste any time and they do tshuva for as many things as they could possibly do tshuva for today. And that's in essence what our responsibility is for. You're, you're not, you don't have to uh, be afraid of the things you didn't have a chance to do tshuva for. You have to be afraid about the things that you did have a chance to do tshuva and still have a chance to do tshuva and you refuse to do so. So for example, if somebody is still wasting seed or desecrating Shabbat or eating non-kosher or stealing in their business or being unethical or whatever it is, that you could do tshuva for tomorrow. That you could do tshuva for today. That you could have done tshuva for, for yesterday. If you choose not to, then obviously you're not afraid enough. You're not afraid enough because if you were truly afraid, you would already do tshuva for. Now if you're in a situation where there's something that you have to do tshuva for, but you haven't done it yet, you haven't completed it yet, you're just learning about it now, you're just getting to it now, that you're okay. Why? Because at least you have the desire to do tshuva and go in the right direction and do the best that you can with what you have. But if it's something that's within your control and you choose, simply choose not to, then you have a very serious problem. And that's actually one of the things that a person needs to know that is a, uh, it brings a person to the unforgivable sin. If I ask all of you, what is the one sin that Hashem uh, simply is, says, there's a verse in the Torah, meaning it's not according to rabbis, it's not according to a certain shita, it's not according to me, 
It's not according to any one particular person, but it's actually a verse in the Torah. A verse in the Torah that says, there's one sin that God Himself says, I will not forgive you for this. I will not forgive you. This is the worst sin you can possibly make. I will not forgive you for this sin. Which one it is? Now, of course, some people would say, oh, it's Chilul Shabbat. Some people will say, oh, it's wasting seed. Or it's a uh, stealing. Or it's, uh, you know, idolatry. Or it's this, or it's that. And you'd all be right that these are horrible sins. But you can do tshuva for all of those sins. You can do tshuva for all of those sins. You can fix those sins. Hashem will forgive you for that sin. But there is one sin that HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I will not forgive for that sin. I will not forgive for that sin. It's literally horrifying when you understand it. Because you understand how many people are committing this sin. Both in the secular world and unfortunately even in the from world. There are certain people that are committing this sin. And that sin is, the Torah says, Shalom Yeli. Everything will be good with me. I'll stay the way that I am. I'll do things the way that I understand. I'm not going to do tshuva. When a person decides they're not going to do tshuva, they're just going to stay that the way that they are. Simply, they are putting themselves in a situation where Kadosh Baruch Hu outright has a verse in the Torah that says, I will never forgive this person. I gave you an opportunity to do tshuva. You lived in this world for an X amount of years. I gave you an X amount of money. I gave you the spouse and the kids and the job and the fame and the fortune and the ups and the downs and the sickness and the health and all the tests and all of the different surprises and the miracles. I gave you a whole life full of all of these things. I gave you the truth in a silver platter on a, in a USB, on YouTube for free, on the Bezrat Hashem app. On the, why did you do tshuva? Oh, I was uh, busy. Oh, I was this. Ah. Hashem says, I will never forgive you. What does it mean I'll never forgive that person? That person goes to Gehenom and never comes out. That's, that's how bad it is. And unfortunately, well, the reason why I said that there are some people that are in the secular world and some people that are in the frum world that are in that position is because just because you're frum for, let's say, going to synagogue, observing Shabbat and kosher, doesn't necessarily mean that you don't need to do tshuva for something significant. Something significant like stealing in your business, something significant like your lack of Yilat Shamaim and, and other things, or making fun of a rabbi, going against the Torah in different ways. So there are certain people, unfortunately, today that are, for all intents and purposes, as far as what it looks like on the exterior, they're from, they're religious, but in reality, in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they're people that are in a position where they're committing the unforgivable sin. And until they do tshuva, they're putting themselves in a situation where they're going to go to Gainom forever. So this is something that's scary and scarier than anything else you could imagine. So if you are in a position right now to do tshuva for something, do it as soon as possible. Try your best. Try your best. And even if you fail, at least you're trying. You're going in the right direction. Never say, I'm not doing tshuva for this. I'm not going to repent for this. I'm not going to fix this. I'm just going to be this way. Constantly fix yourself. If you're an angry person, fix yourself. Okay, you failed again, you yelled at your husband again, you yelled at your, your wife again, your employees again, you made fun of them, you embarrassed them. Okay, do tshuva. Say, I'm sorry, start again. Oh, you stole again. Okay, give it back. Do tshuva. Oh, you did this again. Do tshuva. Fix yourself. Fix the arrogance. Fix the, uh, 
anger, fix the stinginess, fix the lashonara. There are certain women that literally their tongue should be cut out by themselves. They should cut their own tongue out because they can't stop saying lashonara. They can't stop saying lashonara. They simply they're better off not talking. But again, Hashem doesn't want you to cut your tongue off. He just wants you to stop saying lashonara. But if you say, listen, I can't. I have to speak to my sisters. I have to speak to my uh, my friends about everybody else in the neighborhood. Okay, you have to. You're putting yourself in a situation where you're saying, Shalom Yeli, peace will be upon me, and I'll just continue my ways. And that's the unforgivable sin. So this is a very, very dangerous place place to be in. Uh, I know that Rav Edri uh, Shichye recently spoke about this in a shiur also in uh, in Hebrew. And uh, other Chachamim have discussed this in different parts of the Torah, but uh, this is one of the things where the more you delve into this topic, the more you understand that this is a massive problem because there are many, many people that are simply set in their ways even when their ways have been proven to be wrong. And they simply refuse to do tshuva. So as long as you're trying to do tshuva, you're trying to fix yourself, whatever those sins are, you're certainly going in the right direction. You're not in that horrible position I just described. But if you are in one of those people that is simply saying, no, this, I'm simply not going to stop, then you have a very serious problem. So certainly you should change that and at least try. Try to fix it. Try to do tshuva and you'll be surprised how much strength you have uh, to overcome these things once you want to do it. Next question is, I heard the Gemara says that having children is based on mazal. However, I read in the Zerah Shimshon that having children is because of a person's merits. Which is correct? Both are correct. Both are correct. It all depends on a person. The Gemara in Masechet uh, Nida says that as soon as the seed comes out of the male uh, a member and goes into the, uh, into the wife, an angel called Laila takes that seed and goes up to Hashem and says, what will be with this seed? Will it come to life? Is it going to be alive, a boy, a girl, rich, poor, and so on and so forth. And of course, during that time, Hashem decides based on the evaluation of these people that are having this, uh, this, this intimate act. If there are people that are righteous people, if there are people that are, uh, you know, have the merit to uh, have, a, have a child, then certainly this is something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu can bring for them. Uh, if they uh, uh, have the merit, but they have a lack of mazal, that certain things happen, then they just need to make certain changes to change the mazal. If they lack merit, they need to do certain things to change the merits. The point is, is that a person needs to know that it's within their control, it's within their control to change and improve their merits and their mazal. They can improve it. They can do certain things. And one of the greatest things that a person can do, if not the greatest thing that a person can do uh, to improve their merits and their mazal is to make Kiruv their number one priority in life. Aside from their day-to-day job and their marriage and their kids and everything else that they do, they have to make a very serious contribution to Kiruv on a regular basis. Sometimes people make a contribution with their time they give out books in their community, they, uh, they send out uh, shiurim to their community, but they're very stingy when it comes to money. Even though they have money, they figure, listen, I'm already doing enough because I'm arranging a local shiur, I'm giving some free books out, so, you know, it's okay, it covers for the money, I'll give the money to something else. That's a mistake, and a mistake and a half. Why? Because 
To make Kiruv your business means that you have to make it your priority, your number one. Your number one, meaning just like a person makes their business their number one, or their house number one, or their marriage number one, you also have, should make and, uh, and have to make Kiruv your number one if you want to get these extraordinary blessings. And this is what the Gemara in Masechet Sanhedrin, Perek where Rabbi Eliezer ben Holkinos is asked by his students, what can we do in order to be saved from the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, birth pains of, uh, of Mashiach? Because there's going to be a lot of pain uh, at the time of Mashiach itself. There's going to be all types of wars and horrors and so on. What could we be saved? He says, prepare for it. How? By Torah and Gemilut Chasadim. Torah meaning you have to learn Torah and observe the Torah. And Gemilut Chasadim mean do the ultimate Chesed. And there's no greater Chesed than helping people do tshuva. So when a person understands, wait, everything is writing on this chesed, meaning I want to have the best chance in the world to not only see Mashiach, but also not to suffer at that time. In addition, I don't want to suffer through life. In addition, I don't want to have you know suffering in my day-to-day, or lacking children, health problems, and all such other things. So I want to give myself the best opportunity that I can to improve all of those things, and there's only one ticket that will do all of that, and that's Kiruv. So if I am doing Kiruv by distributing books, or distributing USBs, or, distri- or, or inviting a few people to the Shurim, but I'm being stingy somewhere else, or if I'm just giving money, but I'm not distributing books, and I'm not arranging lectures, I figure that as long as I send a check that's easy for me to send, as long as I give a few dollars that's easy for me to send, that's fine. No, no, no. You have to make cube a very big priority in your life. And a fool, a fool is somebody that knows the truth and simply ignores it. It's, it's, it's one of the things that unfortunately you see at times happen. You see at times happen, a person knows the truth, but they simply ignore it because they figure that, you know, there's an exception that's being made for them. Don't be that person. Be a person that makes a cube their priority. And again, it doesn't come easy, but uh, the, neither does the blessing. But when a person brings that into their life, uh, they, they bring things uh, uh, in, in, uh, to, a different, uh, to a different level. Uh, the Zerah Shimshon that you mentioned, by the way, also says that if a person wants to turn all of their sins into mitzvot, then they should do kiruv. Because doing kiruv is the ultimate expression of loving God. And therefore, by getting to the point of doing tshuva from love, a, a person, the Gemara Masechet Yuma, page 86, says a person turns their sins into mitzvot. So the Zerah Shimson says, if a person makes Kiruv their priority in life, not just a good thing to do or an occasionally thing to do, but literally makes it a priority in their life, then they literally are doing tshuva from love. And they turn all of their sins into mitzvot. So of course, if a person understands the, 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 the magnitude of this, they're not going to be stingy in any aspect. They're not going to be stingy with their time, they're not going to be stingy with their money. They're not going to be stingy with their skill set. They're not going to be stingy with anything, with their effort. They're going to be as generous as they can possibly be when it comes to Kiruv because they know that it's for them. It's not for somebody else. They're not doing anybody else a favor more than they're doing to themselves. Because when, it come, when push comes to shove, even if you say, listen, I learned Torah, but how much Torah do you really learn? Do you really, do you, can you really go up to Shemaim and give a lecture for 180 days straight? No breaks, no bathroom, no eating. Can you speak for 180 days without repeating yourself and no jokes? How much Torah do you really learn? In addition to that, 
all the things that you did in your life that were sins, accidental, on purpose. Remember, don't remember. You really did. Do you really think you did tshuva to the point where you erased them? How much did you really erase? And even if you erased, did you erase them to the point where the the the, uh, the tshuva was turned the intentional into accidental, so they're still on your account, but they're not as bad? Or did you really get to loving Hashem? Because quite frankly, even Rabbi Nachman Breslov says that even in his generation, he wished that people would get to a level of doing tshuva from fear. Uh, you know, because doing tshuva from love is simply impossible for the vast majority of mankind. In his generation, needless to say ours. So if a person is simply relying on their own Torah learning and their own basic uh, uh, mitzvah observance and their own uh, actions, simply they're lying to themselves. Why? Because even if you learn Torah, did you really learn enough? You didn't waste any time? You didn't have any bitul Torah? You didn't have any uh, any kfirah? You didn't have all of the things that cause you to do things that are against the Torah. You didn't make certain sins that you forgot to even do tshuva for. When a person does kiruv, he turns everything around. Why? Because now it's not just about my Torah learning. Certainly that's necessary. But it's not just about my Torah learning. Why? Because I'm getting Torah learning from all of the people that I'm helping do tshuva. So now every single person that's used this money and did tshuva because of it, Every time they learn Torah, that goes to my account also. Every time he puts on tefillin, that goes to my account also. Every time he keeps Shabbat, that goes to my account also. Every time he gives tzedakah, that goes to my account also. If he gives tzedakah to care of himself, that goes to my account also. Literally, it's the never-ending. It's the never-ending reward. There is nothing else like it. So when a person understands that when they do kiruv, they're doing it for themselves, it becomes much easier to make it their priority and it becomes much easier to leave the opportunity to make millions of dollars in Wall Street and become somebody that works for free. It certainly becomes easier. Why? Because you have an understanding what Kiruv actually does for yourself much more than what it does for other people. Uh, and so I believe Rabbi Nachman of Breslov said that if you stand under the kosher chupa with your life choice, he or she is destined uh, is your destined soulmate. So how can you marry the wrong person? Uh, it's not about marrying the wrong person. It's a uh, first and foremost a kosher chupa is not just a chupa that's a uh, you know uh, something that you stand under. It's also how what's around it. If you're going to have a, uh, a mixed dancing wedding, immodesty, immorality surround that chupa, certainly that uh, chupa is not kosher. That's number one. Number two, if the uh, uh, witnesses that are signing that ketubah, one of them is a Mechalel Shabbat, or both of them Mechalel Shabbat, then certainly it's not a kosher ketubah, it's not a kosher chupah. Uh, nothing is kosher about it. If the rabbi is a heretic because he brings missionaries to a shul, or because he believes that God needs you, or he doesn't believe in punishment, uh, or he's simply one of these weirdos that just has his own form of Judaism, then you have obviously a very serious problem. Now, if every, a person does everything right, then certainly they're going to get a lot of blessings. The question is, what are they going to do with those blessings? What are they going to do with those blessings? Now, the Baha'i Masechet Sanhedrin says that all of Israel have a share of the world to come. So everybody has a share of the world to come that HaKadosh Baruch Hu already creates at the time He creates them. The question is, what will they do during their life in order to keep that share? A person simply takes the gifts that Hashem gives them and throws them in the garbage. Why? Because they do acts that make them lose Olam Abba. So, a person can marry 
their perfect soulmate, the perfect person, but they mistreat that person, or they mistreat Hashem, or they do all types of sins. So now that person is no is, is something that they end up losing. So it's not a matter of marrying the wrong person. It's a matter of what are we doing in order to maintain the right person? What are we doing in order to maintain the blessings that we did receive? Much more important than the, uh, the unknown. Uh, is there a contradiction between the Mishnah and Masechet Avot and the Pasuk in Kohelet? Saying the one who is a Mezekiah Rabim, sin does not come to his hand and there is no righteous person that doesn't sin. Ah, very, very good question. So, yes, there is a, uh, there is a Mishnah in Masechet Avot, says, Kol HaMezakeh Tarabim Enchet Baal Yado, person that helps uh, people do tshuva, person that does kiruv, sin does not come to their hand. And then on the other hand, the, the uh, uh, proverb says that a righteous, there's no such thing as a person who doesn't sin. So, the, the, uh, the answer to that is as follows. When a person is doing kiruv, then that doesn't mean that they don't sin at all. It doesn't mean that they don't sin at all. It means that HaKadosh Baruch Hu protects them from certain sins, the, the big sins. He protects them from certain things that will come their way, that uh, come to other people that don't necessarily get that protection. So, for example, there could be a, uh, a piece of meat that uh, was not kosher, but there was no way to know that it's not kosher. There was simply no way to, not, to know that it's not kosher. And uh, the person was about to eat it. Okay? And his whole family was about to eat it. And something happened. And all of a sudden he had a stomach ache. All of a sudden he had a phone call. All of a sudden something happened. And he ended up walking away from the plate and not eating it. So that is actually one of the ways that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will protect the person from not sinning from something that he doesn't even know that he's about to do. There's a perfect example of that. It's a real story. That's a famous story. I think I've told it once or twice in the past. Where there was a uh, uh, there's an alacha there's an alacha in the Torah that says that a uh, a Jew is not allowed to uh, leave his meat unattended when there is a goy next to it. He's not allowed to leave it. Where uh, if you have a kosher piece of meat, whatever that meat is, or, or food that you have, you're not allowed the, uh, to leave your food unattended with some gentile, even if that gentile is a nice person and is cordial, and is generous, still, there's an halacha. Why? Because there are certain rules to the world, Kadosh Baruch Hu said, and this is one of them that the sages have taught us. Now, there was a person that was a, uh, a from Jew that learned this halacha, and uh, was very careful with all types of things. One day, he went on a flight, and uh, he was going to a different country, so he had to bring uh, food from his house because it was a very long flight for like 15 hours or something like that. So he went on his flight, and uh, as soon as the uh, plane took off, after the plane stabilized, as everybody that has traveled overseas knows, typically they, uh, they, they, uh, the plane uh, stewardess start bringing the food to everybody. So when they came to this Jewish man, said, do you want this food or that food? He says, no, no, I have already my own food, I don't need the food. Okay, thank you very much, no problem for them. And uh, the guy that was sitting next to him was a uh, Gentile uh, and uh, seemed like a nice person. And he ordered food for himself. Now, as soon as the food came, the Jew felt now comfortable to open up his bag of food that he brought from home. He didn't want to eat by himself when, when the, uh, you know, and the Gentile would look at him while he's eating. So he figured that as soon as 
the food comes for this guy that's sitting next to me, that he doesn't know him from anything. I'll take out my food and I'll eat at the same time. And that's what he did. And he opened up his bag and he saw that his very righteous wife made him a nice delicious sandwich and a burger in it and there's a few uh, french fries next to it and a few this and a few sour all types of wonderful things like mamash almost like he's home so he opens up the bag and he realizes oh wait a minute what am i doing i have to wash my hands it's bread it's bread i have to go wash my hands but ah the uh if i go now the the bread should i just you know maybe wrap my hands and just say you know what ah let me just do it. Oh, he overcame the test and he went to go wash his hands. As soon as he came back and he sat down and he's about to take a big bite of his delicious burger that his dear wife made him, he remembered the halacha that his rabbi taught him, you are not allowed to leave your food, your meat, unattended. And he realized that when he went to the bathroom, even though everybody else is busy with their food and their life and everything, which includes the Gentile that's sitting next to him, still, it's a violation of Dalakha. To eat this sandwich is forbidden now. Yeah, but I'm hungry. And if I don't eat this, I have nothing to eat for another 10, 15 hours. This righteous Jew overcame the test again. Overcame the test again, shut down his uh, his food, put it in a canister, and then put it in a bag. As soon as he did this, he was shocked to see the reaction by the guy that was sitting next to him. Oh, why'd you do that? Why'd you do that? What are you doing? So the Jew looks at him and says, what do you mean? What, 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 what did I do? Why aren't you eating? Uh, I'm not hungry. No, no, come on, come on. You open up the sandwich. You're going to eat. Why aren't you eating? He says, you wouldn't understand. Why wouldn't I understand? Why? You just wouldn't understand. Please, just, just it's okay. Leave me alone. I, let me just rest. Please tell me. I, I want to know. I won't be offended. Can you please tell me why you're not eating? And the Jew tells him, listen, we have our Torah. You ever hear the Torah? He says, the Bible? Yeah, something. Bible, but just without the New Testament. But yes, we have a Torah. And our Torah teaches us that we're not allowed to leave our food unattended next to a Gentile. And when I went away to go wash my hands, I didn't realize that I was leaving the food unattended. So as soon as I came back, I realized that since I left it this way, I'm not allowed to eat it. So the Gentile says, what? Why? Why, why, why do you have this in your Torah? Why do, why do your sages say that you're not allowed to eat this food? He says, because the sages said that you can never trust the Gentile because lest he change your meat and put something not kosher in it. And at that point, the Gentile's face literally turned white. Literally turned white. He couldn't believe what he just heard. And he says, you are the chosen people. You have the truth. So the Jew says, thank you, I know. No, 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 you don't know. You have the truth and you don't even know how right your sages are. He says, what do you mean? He says, listen, 
I was, like everybody else on this plane, hundreds of people about to eat the food that I ordered. Stewardess gave me a burger that I ordered. And I was about to eat this burger. And then I saw you open your burger and you walked away. So I got a better look at your burger. And I said, why is he eating a different burger? When did you get this burger? What, why, why do I have this burger? And for whatever reason or another, your burger looked better to me. So I said, what's the difference? Burger is a burger. And I switched your burger with mine. Your sages were right. Because you listened to them, you didn't eat my non-kosher meat. So this is, Rabotai, one of the things that a person would never know in their right mind is a possibility that it could even happen to them. But there are many, many things that a person who does kiruv gets protected from, where simply they have a special protection from Hashem from certain things that other people will not get. Now certainly they could still sin, Certainly they can still sin. But the sin doesn't change, doesn't get to them like it does to other people. The things that are beyond their control, that go to other people, the different tests that go to other people, don't go to the person that's doing Kiruv. Why? Because they have that special deal with Hashem. So uh, it's a very good question. And the answer is no, there is no contradiction. We just need to understand what the two things are. Uh, next question. Uh, the Noahites can observe the mitzvah of Onik Shabbat. Uh, no. Uh, the, uh, there's two... Uh, observance of Shabbat is only for the Jews. It is not for Noahites. It's not for non-Jews. The Rambam says that a... Uh, and the Gemara says that a Noahide, a Gentile, that observes Shabbat gets themselves, instead of a mitzvah, they get themselves a heavenly death penalty. It's because it's considered stealing. And one of the uh, uh, seven Noahide laws is the prohibition of stealing. And the punishment for, a, for stealing for a Noahide is death penalty. So a Noahide is not allowed to observe Shabbat. And part of observing Shabbat is not to drive, not to light fire, not to write, not to build, not to destroy, but also to have Onik Shabbat, the special pleasure of Shabbat. So this is not something that is for Gentiles, this is for Jews. It's not for Gentiles. Now if a Gentile wants to simply hang out, relax at his house, have a barbecue, uh, I don't know, read a book, have a special meal on Shabbat, by all means. But they should not observe Shabbat mitzvot like it is Shabbat because they're forbidden from doing it. Unless they're doing it for practice purposes because they're, on, they're, on a, uh, they're in the process of converting to Judaism. But if they're not planning on converting, they're not in the process of converting, they're not allowed to observe Shabbat. And anyone that told you that they're allowed is simply wrong. Next question. How can a Noahide woman purify herself after a state of Nida? A Noahide woman does not have a state of Nida. Nida is only applicable to Jewish women. Now, of course, all women, whether they're Jews or Gentiles, have the, uh, the menstrual cycle. Uh, while they're still at that uh, age uh, age group uh, until it stops at some point, but they, uh, when they get older. But as far as the state of Nida, the state of Nida is a spiritual state. It has nothing to do with bleeding. It has nothing to do with the physiology of the, of the body. It's a, it's a spiritual state 
that comes from the bleeding, but it only happens and it's only applicable to Jews. It's not applicable to non-Jews. Non-Jews have no state of nida. And in fact, a non-Jewish woman is allowed to be with her husband whenever she wants, even when she's having her period. There's no violation. There's no uh, uh, problem with it whatsoever. There's no state of impurity uh, for the non-Jew like there is for the Jew in regards to nida. The impurity of non-Jews is something completely different, not relevant, and has nothing to do with nida. Uh, it's a it's something that a person needs to know because again, there are many people out there that are learning shurim, whether it's for me or Rav Mizrahi or many many other rabbis online, and without realizing it, or maybe they are realizing it, they're living Jewish lives, uh, but without any intention, plan, or or or, or to convert and. Before they uh, know it, they start feeling like they already are Jewish, and they start doing things that are, in essence, wrong, uh, wrong halachically, wrong uh, in, in other aspects. And there's simply no need to do that. And again, nobody needs to be offended because this is the Torah that we're talking about. It's not my opinion. Uh, so if it was my opinion, then a person has the right to be offended. If it's if it's a Torah, then it's God's opinion. And God's opinion is not something we should be offended by because He's the one that makes the rules, therefore He's the one that is allowed to tell you, uh, to decide what they are. Now, Kadosh Baruch Hu did not give the Gentiles a state of nida. There is no state of nida. The menstrual cycle has something to do with, with pregnancy and so on. It has nothing to do with, with, the, uh, with the state of nida. So a woman that's a Gentile, that is a, uh, 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 has a menstrual cycle, she... Uh, can even be with her husband during that time if she pleases to, if she finds it disgusting or her husband finds it disgusting or whatever the case is. Obviously, they don't have to be together, but as far as to uh, to observe family purity like the Jews do, certainly she should not do it. She should not do it because it's stealing a mitzvah, no different than people that are, like I said about stealing Shabbat. Uh, now, if she chooses not to be with her husband uh, during the time that she has her period, no problem. But if she decides that she wants to act like she's Jewish and start observing the family purity, waiting several days uh, to uh, to stop bleeding, then waiting more days to uh, to have the clean days, and then go to some body of water or go to an actual mikveh and dip there, this is a very serious problem. So the point being is, is that a person needs to know where they stand and they need to act accordingly. Why? Because when you do... That's you serving your purpose. That's you serving your creator. When a person starts doing things that they're not allowed to do and they're not supposed to do, although those things are righteous acts, they're not righteous acts for you. They're not righteous acts for you. So for example, if let's say for example, I decided to take some money and give it to somebody. Okay, give it to some poor person. Okay, that would be a great thing. People would say, oh, wow, Look, he's giving tzedakah, that's so nice, that's so righteous, that's so generous, and all the wonderful compliments. But if they found out that when I was taking that money, I was taking it from somebody else's bank account, I was taking it from somebody else's safe and giving it to other people as tzedakah, then obviously that's not tzedakah, that's stealing. So that's in essence the person, what a person needs to understand is that although the mitzvah of family purity is a mitzvah and a good deed for a Jew, it not for a non-Jew. No one is telling you to be promiscuous, chas v'shalom, to be immodest, to, to do things that uh, you shouldn't do or do the things that you don't want to do. 
but again a person needs to know where they stand and what they need to do in order to serve their creator if they're a jew they need to serve hashem like a jew if they're not a jew they need to serve hashem like a righteous non-jew and a righteous non-jew has plenty of work to do already that they don't have to add any more mitzvot to themselves because if a person knew that in order to be a righteous jew they have to perfect their character traits they have to overcome their anger they have to overcome their arrogance they have to overcome their stinginess they have to overcome their carelessness they have to overcome all of the obnoxious things that are about them they have to overcome them they realize they already have a whole lot of work uh, uh, cut out for them there's no need for them to add any more they don't need to add any more now if they want to do these mitzvot of family purity and shabbat and kosher and everything else then they simply need to convert that's it and and don't live a double life they need to convert now of course you can't just convert just because you want to you have to you have to go through a process but nonetheless if a person is through the process then they'll have guidance from the rabbi of what to do what not to do when to do it when not to do it for example when we uh, guide different converts many times the converts want to take all of the mitzvot that show exterior looks meaning automatically they want to grow a beard automatically they want to get a hat automatically they want to get a big talit and a tzitzit and a big kippah and put on tefillin on day one they don't even know what's in the box they don't even know the halachot that have to do with tefillin they don't even know there's multiple types of tefillin they don't know that there is a when to put on tefillin and how to put on tefillin but they like to look they like the look of the kippah they like the look of everything and they want to look jewish and it's a mistake and many times i tell people that the tefillin is not something that you even begin doing you don't even begin doing until you pretty much have a date of when you're converting meaning you've already gone through the process it's already been confirmed that you know enough and have made enough changes in your life to be a jew we're just waiting for the bedin to meet with you in a month in two months whenever it is that's when you get your tefillin and that's when you start putting them on you don't put them on a month after you started uh, learning torah and you started your conversion process you you put it on later on later on and the same thing goes with a lot of other things many times people ask me rabbi is it okay if i put on my tzitzit like you do and i wear it outside and i always tell them absolutely not in fact you shouldn't even wear a tzitzit you just started the conversion process or learning everything six months ago three months ago four months ago everyone knows that you're not jewish you're going to put on a tzitzit people are going to think you're jewish that's a problem that's a very serious problem you should not put it and put on a tzitzit when should i do it later on once you become a jew or literally a, 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 a week away before conversion and a lot of people have a hard time listening to this advice because they think oh you're keeping me down or i want to do it or better yet you have some people that simply they don't want to listen to good advice when you give them because they figure that maybe they can do it in a different way and unfortunately there's no end to these stories that i can tell you what i deal with all types of headaches that people give me for no reason i don't know what i did to them that they simply decide that they're going to return the help that i give them with headaches and the advice that i give them with more headaches but one time i had a situation where there was a guy that told me listen you've been helping me i've been wanting to convert but uh there's a different rabbi that uh wants to help me and uh he uh he wants to convert me i said listen you found somebody that's going to take you to a bedin by all means well he wants to call you okay he wants to call me i don't really do calls uh it, it takes a lot of time it takes a lot of effort i could just simply do with messages but anyway after a few messages with this rabbi eventually there was a phone call 
within that phone call, I heard this rabbi say a few things, and one of them was that he does the conversion himself, but he somehow gets a certificate from some bedin. Okay, this sounds a little strange, sounds illegal, sounds unethical, and sounds against halacha, but whatever. Anyway, this guy had a, uh, uh, you know, wanted to be the donkey that speaks. By all means, you let him speak. Anyway, after he told me what he told me, I told him that I disagree with his way, I disagree with what he's doing, I would not recommend that he does this with the people that I know, but there's nothing that I can do. Uh, If they want to listen to him, by all means, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, I can't stop anybody. He said, no, no, don't worry about the the Betty knows me and it's okay and we've done it and we this and you know, all the mumbo jumbo. Okay, fine. Anyway, Besiyat Dishmaya is like a who always helps me left and right even when I don't even realize that I need the help. He helps me. Literally, maybe two, three days later, the Betty that he was talking about happened to call me. They needed my help with something. Now, Interestingly enough, I was able to help them with something that they needed. And I said, Sims, I'm already on the phone with you. I wanted to ask you something. There's this uh, rabbi that uh, called me, and he says that he does this, this, and that, and you send them certificates, even though you're Dayanim. Don't go over there. The rabbi on the phone literally almost had a heart attack. What? Who? What is he talking about? Never. Give me his phone number. Right now we're going to call this guy. He's a rasha. He's this. Don't trust anything that he says. We would never do such a thing. No one does such things. Why would we put everything on a line to do such a thing? I said, I don't know. It's what he said. I don't know. Check yourself. I'm just telling him. I'm asking because it kind of sounded weird. That, you know, a Bedin that I'm familiar with, it's an honorable Bedin, is doing things like this. But I don't know. I don't know anybody's business. So that's why I'm asking you. And this rabbi literally almost lost his mind. He couldn't believe somebody was doing this. So now, after I found this out, I contact my, uh, you know, this former student, current student, whatever student he was at the time, and tell him, listen, by the way, I spoke to that uh, rabbi of yours that you told me about, and he said such and such, similar to what you said, but he gave me some more details. And as you would have it, I found out that everything that he's saying is a complete lie. His, his uh, conversion will not count in the eyes of the Rabbanut. Most likely will not count according to Allah. And uh, quite frankly, he is a thief and a liar. And we also found him lying in a few other things. So you would expect this student to do what? Thank you so much. I love you. You saved my life. You saved my eternity. You, you, that's what you would expect. What do I get? Oh, no. Come on. Listen. Maybe we should talk about it. Maybe this. Maybe that. He starts calling me. The other people call me. Everybody, what do you want from my life? I'm trying to help you. Now it's my fault that you felt... You almost, I'm saving you from a criminal. What do you want from my life? I'm telling you, there's a, you know, a way to do it. There's a way to do it. You want to do it the right way, you want to do it the wrong way. No, no, no. All of a sudden, why? Because people simply don't know. Don't know how to do what they're supposed to do. They just simply decide that this is the right way, and if you don't agree with it, then there's something wrong with you. 
So, unfortunately, this is, this is part of the world, this is part of uh, the, the, the life, this is part of the test, but a person needs to know, they need to play their role in life, and not somebody else's role. It always seems, it always seems to be difficult to be yourself and easy to be somebody else, but I can promise you that being somebody else ends up being very, very painful, uh, and uh, unfortunately, something that uh, is going to destroy the real you. And you certainly don't want to do that. If a person wants to be a Jew, there's a way to become a Jew. A person that uh, Hashem wants them to become a Jew, Hashem will open up the path at some point for them to become the Jew. That may be tomorrow, it may be in a year from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. But if a person really wants to go on the right path, time should not be of the essence. They should simply do everything they can and wait patiently until Hashem opens up the door. And I can tell you from personal experience that some of the most righteous people that I know and had the merit to be part of their life, to be part of their conversion, were people that went through the conversion process for 10, 15 years before they ever met me. Like they went and they got scammed by a bunch of people and Hashem gave them a test and another test another test, another test, and literally they got tortured by different criminals one after another for like 10, 15 years. And I know multiple stories like this. And eventually they met me and, you know, Baruch Hashem, we helped them and within a reasonable time frame helped them convert too. But the point is that they would have never gotten to the uh, destination of actual conversion of where they wanted to get to had they given Hashem a, uh, a time slot of when he's supposed to give them what they want. They, haven't, they wouldn't have put uh, a gun to Hashem's head, figuratively speaking. But unfortunately, many times people think that they can put a gun to Hashem's head and they can tell him, listen, I want to do it, I want to be this, now. And if you don't do it the way that, uh, that uh, you know, this way, then I'm going to do it in a different way. I'm going to beat the system. You're not beating anybody. You're not beating anybody. And uh, when Hashem wants a person to be uh, successful in something, whether that's through conversion or, or business, or marriage, or having children, or whatever it is, Hashem will be the one that gives you the key to open the door. If He doesn't, no power in the world will make it so. And I have several stories that I literally got over the last month and a half, two months since I came from Israel. A couple of people that went a different path, they wanted to get conversion a different way. Literally, two different families, unrelated completely, went to uh, some uh, conversion, uh, that uh, was quicker and faster and this and that and it looked great and what ends up happening? Now they have major problems. One, nobody wants to marry them. The other one, nobody wants to accept them in the community. Why? Because their conversion paper is toilet paper according to everybody else. So what ends up happening? They have to actually do a whole new conversion even though they've already been living like Jews, Orthodox Jews for a few years. But according to the Orthodox community, everyone's considering them going. Why? Because they didn't follow the path they were supposed to. Now, of course, this in itself is also a test. It's also a test. But if a person is there to serve Hashem, this shouldn't be a big deal. They should just simply say, okay, it didn't work this way. Okay, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. No problem. I won't try to beat the system ever again. I'll simply do what, that, uh, what the rabbis say. But that's the problem. Many times people try to beat the system like they do, try to beat the government and beat taxes and beat, uh, you know, the, uh, you know, everything. Don't try to beat the system. There's a uh, master of the world that runs the system. There's an eye that's watching, an ear that's listening, and there's a hand that's writing every single thing that we do. Don't try to beat the system. There is no such thing as success.
of beating Hashem's system. It's simply a fool's errand. Uh, next question. My, my neighbor keeps pushing me to sign up to Netflix. Okay, I don't need to hear the rest of the question. Your neighbor simply should be told, no, we do not want to sign up to something that is going to destroy our eternity. Netflix is full of tum'ah, full of impurity, full of pornography, full of immodesty, full of things you're not allowed to watch. So she claims that there are good programming in, in Jerusalem. I never had Netflix, but I told her there must be garbage shows on it. She said that it's good since you can choose what to watch. What should I respond? The response is no, thank you, no, thank you. The end. The only thing that should be on a screen in your house is Shulet Torah. That's it. If you want to watch something to, to learn uh, to, to cook or something to learn some type of skill, that's fine also. But uh, to, learn, to watch movies and put yourself in front of a test every day with different TV programming and, and things like that, that's certainly a test that you don't want to bring to yourself. It's like literally uh, uh, going into a mikveh with a, uh, with a pig in your hands and thinking that you're going to become uh, purified. It's simply not going to work. Next, uh, what does it mean that the Erev Rav was created wicked? How can a soul start off as wicked and not holy when it's from Hashem? Now, you'd be surprised to know that the Gemara in Masechet Chagiga uh, says that uh, 974 generations before Hashem created the world, He created the Torah. So the Chachamim ask, what is this number 974? Why not 100, 500, 1,000? What is this 974? Where did this come from? So initially, the, uh, the Gemara says that initially, HaKadosh Baruch Hu was going to give the, the Torah a thousand generations after creation. But he saw that the original souls that uh, were going to come into this world were so wicked, uh, and without Torah, they simply would lose their right to exist over and over again, similar to the generation of Noah. And it's simply the world wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be able to continue. So instead of bringing them all into the world, uh, these uh, uh, souls that were uh, uh, without Torah, in so many words, wicked souls, that uh, they, they, uh, Hashem created them, they are uh, uh, bad, but from the Tum'ah, you could also get sparks of Kedusha. This is a whole Kabbalistic shield that maybe one day we'll have the merit to do, but the point being is, these types of Neshamot, Hashem says that if I bring them all into the world, by the way, they'll destroy the world. So what do I do? I'll, uh, I'll uh, put them in every generation like seasoning. And every generation has some Erev Rav that is from those, uh, uh, from those generations. And Hashem, what He did, is that instead of giving the Torah a thousand generations after uh, creation, He gave the uh, Torah uh, 26 generations after creation. Uh, and, uh, and, and gave it because the, the world wouldn't have survived any longer without the Torah, and, uh, but at the same token, to, uh, to give it right away uh, wasn't possible because there was no nation yet. No nation to earn it, no nation to want it, and so on. But these, uh, these particular souls had to uh, uh, be spread throughout the generations uh, and sprinkled like, uh, like seasoning. And from them came many things that are bad, but also many things that are good. One of the Chachamim asks in the Gemara, uh, you know, why did Hashem create Edom? Uh, Edom from them comes Amalek. Kadosh Baruch Hu knows that you know this Edom is going to destroy the Bet Hamikdash. 
It's going to be the ultimate uh, enemy of Hashem. It's going to be Amalek. It's going to be Haman. It's going to be all the evil things in the world. Why would Hashem do such a thing? So the Chachamim say, HaKadosh Baruch Hu knows the beginning, the middle, and the end of everything. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu told us, What? I saw that from this Edom, from this Edom, will be one day Rabbi Meir Balanes. And for him it was worth it for me to create Edom. Meaning, Rabbi Meir Balanes was so righteous, was so extraordinary, was so holy, that it's worth it to bring the enemy of Am Yisrael, the enemy of God, the Holocaust, the Inquisitions, the destructions. Why? For this one tzaddik. For this one tzaddik. That's how much Hashem loves the tzaddikim. So the point is, is that there are certain good things that uh, came from Edom. Like Rabbi Mir Balanes, who was a convert. His uh, parents were converts. And of course, there are many other righteous people that came from Edom, such as Shmaya and Avtalion, were also converts. Rabbi Akiva, his parents were converts. His uh, father was a convert. Uh, the uh, the uh, you know the uh, Rabbi Mirbalanes, like I said, Ruth, the grandmother of Mashiach, the grandmother of of David Amelech, she was a convert. Itro was a convert. All of these people came from foreign nations. Many of them being the uh, uh, you know enemies of God. Many of them being enemies of God. Not not just uh, decent people uh, that uh, ended up uh, becoming uh, more righteous. No, no, really, literally enemies of God. And, uh, but that's also because uh, the, one of the Klalim in the Torah that's discussed in the Zohar is that there are special super neshamot. Super neshamot that the Satan holds hostage in his part of the world. He holds them hostage. They're not in this world. These are super neshamot. And he will do everything possible to keep these neshamot on his side of impurity. If that neshama once it's brought into the world, it has special tendency to do certain things. If that neshama chooses the bad way, they will be the worst person in the world. If they choose the good way, they will be the biggest tzaddik in the world. And one of those people was Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital or Rabbi Chaim Ivolojin? Um, no, Rabbi Chaim Ivolojin. Rabbi Chaim Ivolojin was, uh, no, Rabbi Chaim Vital. Rabbi Chaim Vital. I confuse their names sometimes. They're two different Chachamim with the two different time frames, but for some reason in my head, they, uh, they're always confused. Anyway, he, uh, uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital, he, uh, the, the Arizal, uh, first met him, and uh, after he was uh, in business, and he was, uh, you know, he left the, the Torah world, and he actually learned different uh, types of things uh, to become very rich, which he, some Chacham told him that he was going to do when he was 13 years old. So he went to some Chacham, and that Chacham told him, you have a very special Neshama. You are going to uh, delve into uh, money, and you're going to become very, very successful. By the time you're uh, uh, 20 years old, you'll be very, very rich with uh, all types of things, and you're going to be tested at 23 years old. 23 years old, you'll have a path to choose. You'll have a path to choose. And uh, this uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital went and delved into business and was a very, very special person, very smart person, and actually learned alchemy. You'd be surprised that alchemy is real. 
He learned alchemy, he learned how to create gold, and he became extraordinarily successful. Uh, and um, when he was 23 years old, uh, he met the Arizal, uh, who uh, encouraged him to learn Torah and so on, and took him under his wing. And uh, later on, he told him that uh, one of the things that uh, led Arizal to, to invest so much into him is because he knew that his neshama was superior to everybody else in such a fashion that if he would choose to be righteous, then he would become Gdolado, the biggest, most righteous person in the generation, which is what ended up happening. If not, he would become the worst person of all generations. Not just the worst person of the generation, not just Hitler, but the worst person of all generations. That was the power of that special neshama that he had. So there are certain people that the Zohar Kadosh says that were prisoners of the Satan, that were freed. And, uh, and in essence became uh, uh, very, very extraordinary people. One of them is Itro, another one is David Melech. These were Neshamot, they were prisoners of the Satan. Uh, that, uh, you know, this is a uh, part of the teachings of the Zohar and uh, Kabbalah, but also different, uh, different aspects of the uh, uh, secret part of the Torah also. But also, you know, Midrashim and so on talk about it too, and different Chachamim. But point being is, Hashem creates everything. He creates both the righteous and the wicked because these are all simply tools that He uses in the world. These are all tools that He uses in the world. So for example, in Parashat Bereshit, when He says to the, uh, uh, let us create man in our image, He's consulting with the, uh, with the angels. Uh, not because He needs their advice or He needs their opinion, but because the angels are His tools. They're His tools of how He manages the world. And that's what the Midrash Rabbah also talks about when uh, Kadosh Baruch Hu talks to Avram. He tells them about how he runs the world and how he is above nature. He is above all rules. There is no angel that uh, can decide something that's against God. He can overcome and, uh, and uh, supersede all decisions. But nonetheless, he uses the angels and the nature and the different things that he has in the world as his tools to manage the world as his tools to manage the world, and evil is one of those tools. Anti-Semitism is one of those tools. Charlie asking, can you explain some of the differences between the Mishnah Torah and the Shulchan Aruch, uh, and which is recommended to study? Uh, well, I mean, the Mishnah Torah is by the Rambam from ni- nearly 900 years ago. Uh, the Rambam covered every aspect of the Torah. In his uh, monumental work, of uh, the, the the fourteen books of the Mishneh Torah, he covered everything, every single aspect of the Torah, and uh, the Shulchan Aruch, which came about four hundred years later by Rabbi Yosef Karo, uh, did not cover every aspect of the Torah. Uh, it covered a lot, but not every aspect of the Torah. Now, as far as the uh, the Shulchan Aruch, that's how all of Klal Israel decided to paskin like the Shulchan Aruch, which is both the uh, customs of the Sfaradim and the Ashkenazim because the Rama also added the uh, differences between Sfaradim and Ashkenazim where it applied. But the rest of it is the same both for Sephardic and for uh, um, uh, for Ashkenazim. Uh, now, that's how we pass in like the Shulchan Aruch. 
But since the Shulchan Aruch did not cover every aspect, for example, there is no Ilchot uh, uh, um, Shuvah. Uh, um, there's no Ilchot Shuvah or Ilchot Melachim uh, you know, in, in the Shulchan Aruch. So what do you do when it comes to those Alachot? You go to the Rambam. You go to the Rambam. The Rambam covers it over there. Now, where, which one do you study? Uh, quite frankly, uh, if a person is new and is not already well-versed in the Shulchan Aruch, in the Mishnah Torah already, then I would say don't study either one of them. Study the, uh, a more uh, 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 recent Alachic book that, uh, uh, that applies the law uh, of the Shulchan Aruch and the Mishnah Torah to your life today. So if you're Sephardi, then you would go to Ravavadya Sfarim, or if you're an English speaker, you would go to Yakut Yosef, which is both by Ravavadya and his son, the Rishon Etzion Arav Yitzhak Yosef. You would get the Yakut Yosef, and that's how you would learn your Alachot. You have a, uh, 17, 18 volumes in English, in French, in Spanish, uh, in Hebrew, of course, there's like 30-something volumes, uh, and you would learn the Yakut Yosef because that takes the law and applies it to today's life. It's the law of the Shulchan Aruch, it's the law of the Rambam, but it's applied to today. Show you, because you're not going to know how to read uh, and apply a lot of the things that are in the Shulchan Aruch and the Rambam uh, when it's not, uh, you know, moral laws. When it comes to Allahic laws, you're not going to know how to apply them to your microwave and your car and so on. So you have to read something more recent. If a person is Ashkenazi, then they have to go to the Ashkenazi poskim. You have the Chafetz Chaim, the, 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 uh, uh, you have Rav Moshe Feinstein, and many, many other Chachamim. You have the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch in English. Uh, it's a one sefer that has an extraordinary amount of halachot uh, uh, in it. Uh, and, and also there's a bunch of other books. But the point is, you don't go to the Shulchan Aruch at first, or to the Mishneh Torah at first, uh, until you know of how to uh, deal with these things today. Because first you have to learn how to live today. Then after you learn how to live today, you go further with the sources of how they got what they got today. Where's the source? Then you see, oh, the Alkut Yosef, or the Chafetz Chaim, or Rav Moshe Feinstein, or Rav Avadia, or any of the other Chachamim that uh, wrote Sfarim, they pask in this way. And when they pask in, they give you a source. Where's their source? And you'll see, oh, they mention, they got this answer, this Alacha, regarding cars or microwave or electricity or, or food or, or whatever it is, Pesach, whatever it is, they got it from, they're quoting the Shulchan Aruch. Oh, so let me go see what the Shulchan Aruch says. And you study the Shulchan Aruch, which is a completely different way of, of learning, uh, you know, than, than the way the books are written today. But nonetheless, you go to Shulchan Aruch. And Shulchan Aruch also quotes, where did he get it? Nearly 90-something percent of the Shulchan Aruch is the Rambam. Uh, so you'll see that Shulchan Aruch Paskin this way, how? Because he got it from the Rambam. Now you go to the Rambam, even though the Rambam didn't actually quote sources uh, in the, the Mishneh Torah, the Chachamim that uh, were students thereafter, put sources across the board for everything that he wrote almost. So now there is sources. You'll see the Rambam got this. Oh, he got this from the Gemara in Masechet Moed uh, Katan, in Masechet Sanhedrin, Masechet Shabbat. So you go to the Gemara. And the Gemara will tell you, oh, we got it from the Mishnah. And the Mishnah will tell you, we got it from the Pasuk in the five books of Moses. And Moses got it from HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So you see that all of these things are connected. 
But before you go through everything I just said, you have to first learn what to do today. Why? Because you're judged based on today, not based on your ability to go back to the original source. You first need to know what to do today, and that's why I would say, if you're Ashkenazi, I would start with something like the Kitzur Shulchan Aruch, that you can get online for free, uh, for, uh, for uh, uh, relatively cheap, uh, from uh, one of the uh, you know, Jewish bookstores, if, uh, and there's also uh, uh, others, but uh, I would say that's the uh, one that I know the most. If you're Sfaradi and an English speaker, I would go with Yalkut Yosef. If you're a Hebrew speaker, uh, native Hebrew speaker, perfectly a Hebrew speaker, and you have a, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to study, I would still recommend to go to Yalkut Yosef. Uh, but just the Yalkut Yosef in Hebrew, it's much more extensive. It's much more extensive. It's almost, I would say, double the size uh, as far as the, the amount of uh, information that's in it for every halacha. Uh, but uh, still, it's a, it's a huge body of work and Baruch uh, has a lot of information in it. And then other Sfarim also. But again, don't try to conquer the, uh, the entire Torah in one day. It's simply not going to happen. But just try to do whatever you can today and then tomorrow and then the next day and let out little by little you'll get to where you need to be. Okay, Rabotai, thank you very, very much for learning with me. I appreciate it. I think that we've answered uh, quite a few questions. May each and every single one of them have bracha. Uh, every one of you will have bracha, atzlacha, uh, in everything that you do, especially the ones that continue to share these lectures with uh, their loved ones, their hated ones, their, uh, their, their unknown ones, and their known ones. Just share these lectures Continue to contribute your time, your effort. If you're able to also donate on bezatashem.org or on the website uh, that we have for Tikkun Abrit or on the app uh, or you can send checks or you could simply, uh, you know, uh, do some other, uh, uh, you know, miraculous way of uh, sending the money or you could just simply continue watching this Yulim. Whatever you do, just stick with us, stick with the truth. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu will continue bringing blessings to your lives, to your marriages, to your work, and uh, surely to your eternity. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Amen.